Hello, everyone. This is Chris Miller, your co-host of your absolute favorite podcast of all time, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, today, we just want to ask you, if you're enjoying it, to subscribe to our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get exclusive content, and you can help out Rob and Chris do all the things you love so well. Remember to hold fast and enjoy the show. table when Kyle's chained down in the basement, isn't there? It's always mm-hmm. nice to just not mm-hmm. have Kyle. I, I mean, I, it sounds crass, but like... the uh, <clears throat> You're not hearing the, the, the tapping coming through the microphones, are you? I don't have a... I don't have a... Yeah. yeah, I mean, after a couple days, the, like, the tapping usually gets softer, mm. so it's always mm. good. Well, as, as, as he gets weaker and more dehydrated. Yeah. You can't hear yeah. him scratch as much once the fingernails are worn away on the mm. sides of the well. Yes, down Warren. Warren down. What's going on in your basement? <laughs> They're playing like a well. Uh, just, just move the lotion basket. It's fine. I wasn't aware you lived in a medieval keep, Chris. What's going on? What's the, with uh, what's the, with the new Bichon Freeze too? I haven't noticed you know, that. That house, that house is back on the market. The, really? The, yeah, the Science Layton? of the Lambs house is on the market, and every time that listing comes up, because it's for sale like every year and a half, people yeah. think, "Oh, this is going to be a great." Great, we'll flip this because everybody wants to live in the fucking Science of the Lambs house. Nope. Hmm. Um, they always have to put on the listing that there is not a well in the basement. Yep. <laughs> well, and the other... It, yeah, people it, get real bummed when they find out it was only used for exterior shots. Yeah. It's in Layton. Have you been to Layton? No, and I think I'm yes. better off. You may know that you may have been been to Layton and you don't know about it because uh, there's like 10 houses there. Mm. So, I mean, it's... That's part of the problem, is that you're pretty much two weeks from everywhere. Well, yeah. He's right, too. (laughs) By what, donkey cart? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's that bad. Yeah. It's it, it's that bad. Though. Well, we, we we could keep going into this, but it starts the podcast properly, or it gets the hose again. Welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller, and I am Michael Ernett. and I am Kyle Graper. Shut the hell up, Kyle. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Kyle couldn't be with us today, um, and uh, actually, we we pulled a little switcheroo on everybody. We do apologize. I know that if you listen to the last episode at the end, we mentioned that uh, coming up was going to be Mike's purview and our series on Dan Sickles, but uh, unfortunately, due to some illness and some uh, schedule conflicts, because we're supposed to have your brother Jim right. come and join exactly. us. We don't want to count out all of his hard work. We don't want to count out all of the research that we've collectively done on it. So we've decided. That we are today going to do the episode we were going to do after the Dan Sickles series, uh, which is my uh, my mandate. And uh, today we are discussing the Odyssey of the Second Pacific Squadron, uh, the first and spoiler alert only voyage of the uh, Second Pacific Squadron of the. But Imperial. it was a real humdinger. <laughs> oh yes, it's like if, if uh, you know Star Wars was all just one big movie. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, the um. The first and only voyage of the Second Pacific Squadron of the Imperial Russian Navy was a seven and a half month, eighteen thousand mile odyssey of hijinks, goof 'em ups, international incidents, and a general cavalcade of dumb shit shenanigans that only gets wilder when you realize these trials were on the way to fight the actual battle, and that's what makes you realize why this great floating disaster quite literally drove some of the men involved insane. Yeah, they really had it out for just like unarmed merchant vessels by accident over mm-hmm. and over again. 
Yeah, and not very good at fighting them. No, no. As not it turns very out, good. as it turns out, it's like <laughs> yeah. the like the Australian emu war. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like technically, the emus won. Yeah. Like, where in this case, it, whenever the Mm-mm. the naval fleet engages a a large group of fishing trawlers, the trawlers win. Pretty much. I mean, you know, I, I I was in the Navy. I didn't go to the, you know, I didn't go to Annapolis. I didn't go to the Naval War College. But I, I generally think if somebody came up to me and said, you've got a battleship. You're fighting a schooner. Who wins? I'm going with the battleship. It should be an Nine times easy out of ten. Answer. Not exactly a sucker bet, right? Yeah. yeah, that's this. The story today is going to make you, Mike, look back on... All of the weird stuff that went down, and all the all the questionable decisions that you witnessed during your time in the Navy, and it's going to make you look back and go, "Wasn't that bad?" No, no. This is this is the Jerry Springer of naval combat. Oh, this I mean, is, this is why it's very important to train a Navy. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is well, no. This is a seven and a half month journey where the entire time the backing music should have been Yakety Sax. I mean, that's oh, yeah. it's that simple. <laughs> the SS Keystone Cops. Yeah. The, um, so let's uh, before we go into the story, let's go over our sources for today's uh, today's episode. Uh, the primary source was the Tsar's Last Armada: The Epic Voyage to the Battle of Tsushima by uh, Konstantin Pleshikov. We have The Rising Sun and the Tumbling Bear: A Military History of the Russo-Japanese War by Richard Conanton. Uh, we also have The Russians at Sea: A History of the Russian Navy by David Woodward. Tsushima, nineteen o five: Death of a Russian Fleet by Mark Lourdes. And um, I have to give a big shout out to uh, the YouTube uh, to YouTuber Drakinafell. Um, he this man has an encyclopedic knowledge of naval history, and the amount of material he puts out on a weekly basis is absolutely insane. It's I mean, really I, good. I, I do a lot with my days. Man, I feel like a slouch when I look at his video page. Um, but yes, he he's done an excellent examination of the. Uh, the Voyage of the Second Pacific Squadron, the follow-on battle, and some looks at the individual ships involved. And definitely, definitely check his stuff out if you are at all a fan of naval history. And a fan of British wit. Mm, yes, yes. He, he is, is a snarky, witty British dude. Engineer by profession, too. He's not a, He's not even a historian by profession. This is, this is his side hustle. It doesn't surprise me, though. Yeah. I mean, it, for the for the way he puts he puts his show together, mm-hmm. it, it really doesn't. It's incredible. Well, and his and his engineering know how really does inform a lot of the material he puts out. So uh, yeah, big ups to Drakenfell. Um, so gentlemen, if there are no other points of order, shall we begin? I'm good. But let's set sail. Let's do it. Thanks, Kyle. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the challenges of researching anything to do with the Russian Navy in the Tsarist era is that so much confusion can result when it comes to the dates of events particularly if you're comparing Russian sources with anybody else's, thanks to the fact that the Russians at this time were still using the old Julian calendar, which is, I think, 13 days behind our modern Gregorian calendar. So, for example, we're recording this on the 5th of October, but the Tsarist Russians would consider today to be the 23rd of September. Um, It's the 420th of March. Well, yes, it it still is. Or, as the Russians would have considered it, the 407th of March. Uh, in short, I think I managed to square all the dates in the story with our modern calendar, but if some of these are a little off, I do apologize in advance. Um, another fact on the matter is that so much of the full story re- revolves around battles and engagements that we're going to have no choice but to yada, yada, yada our way through, but I think it is wise to provide a little bit of background regarding the state of play uh, to provide some context. So to make a massively long story fairly short, 
In February 1904, Imperial Japan and Tsarist Russia went to war with each other over territory in northeastern China and expanding rival spheres of influence. Russia wanted some warm weather bases for its forces in the east and a more secure strategic situation far from its governmental home in the western part of the country, while the Japanese were concerned that Russian expansion would threaten territories much closer to the Japanese home islands. As such, Japan launched a, a series of surprise attacks, and soon the Japanese had won a series of fast victories, surrounding and besieging the Russian naval base of Port Arthur and taking apart the Russian Pacific fleet bit by bit in a string of bold attacks. Now, when we think of what was the first modern war of the 20th century, for most people, World War I comes to mind. But that's not really true. Uh, the Russo-Japanese War served as a sort of dress rehearsal for a lot of the weapons and techniques that would make the First World War the great international charnel house that it became. Technologies like machine guns, long-range artillery, even rudimentary armored cars and trains made a real debut in this war, but the biggest indicator that the world was moving into a new era of warfare was the naval combat. Six months into the war, however, with their Pacific fleet either sunk or bottled up in their bases by uh, Japanese ships and ground troops, the Russians have a problem. They need to reinforce their fleet in the east and lift the siege on Port Arthur, but of several ways to do that, some of them present a serious problem. First, there are other ships at Vladivostok, about 1,500 miles north uh, into the northeast, but it's October, and the port is already starting to freeze over, limiting the usefulness of the ships, and the Japanese fleet is also raiding right outside the port entrance uh, to do, their, do what they've been doing to the Russian fleet so far. Uh, Russia's Black Sea fleet is several thousand miles closer as the crow flies and is in a much better state of battle readiness, given their proximity to Russia's classic enemy, the Ottoman Empire, but the Ottoman fleet could block the Bosphorus and make the Russians start another war they can't afford just to get the ships there to fight the war they were already fighting in the first place. And they couldn't afford. Yes. <laughs> right. Couldn't afford. They couldn't even afford the first war, let's be honest. This, this comes up, this is fairly popular in, in Russian warfare. Whenever you realize just how big Russia is, it's not at all surprising that warfare in Russia is incredibly expensive. Yes. If we had, uh, if, if we got on the magic school bus right now, because we can't take a car and it's hard to take <laughs> a boat overland, mm -hmm. and we got, and we start flying to Vladivostok, when we get to St. Petersburg, we are halfway there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, a little less than halfway there. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's and well, that's a long damn way. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean Russia is what seven and a half thousand miles end to end, mm -hmm. east to west, three four and a half thousand miles north to south. It's yeah. massive. So, <clears throat> with the Black Sea fleet out of the picture, that leaves Russia's Baltic fleet as the source of reinforcements. However, nobody was under the impression that sending ships from the Baltic to the Pacific was going to be a quick trip. Going around the north of Russia was out as it was getting to be autumn, and the sea ice would lock off the entire north coast of uh, the continent for another six or to eight months, and there wasn't an icebreaker in the world that existed in 1904 that could bust a path through that sort of ice, or more realistically, a fleet of icebreakers. So the long way around would have to do, and how long that long way was would be up to the choice made about the Suez Canal, but more on that in a minute. At its shortest, the journey would be over 9,000 miles, and at its longest, over 18,000 miles. Another issue, the British. Great Britain was the world's mightiest sea power at this time by a massive long shot, with powerful squadrons based throughout her massive empire, and control of not only the lion's share of bases and coaling stations between the fleet's departure point and destination, but also the primary and but they also had control over the primary means by which a journey from the Baltic to, the Vladiv uh, to Vladivostok could be shortened by half, the Suez Canal. <clears throat> there were two dangers in the Russian leadership's minds. One. The Brits could just close off access to the canal, costing valuable time, money, and resources, 
as the fleet sails all the way through the Mediterranean and then back out again. And two, the Japanese fleet would sail all the way to the Red Sea and just wait for the Russian ships to exit the, uh, exit the canal so they could take them apart piecemeal. In addition, the British had an alliance in place with the Japanese. Now, there was a clause that dictated the British wouldn't get involved in any conflict. Japan found itself in involving land in China or the Korean Peninsula, uh, arranged in return for massive discounts to produce Japanese warships and British shipyards. So while the British wouldn't attack the Russians on sight, it's not very likely that they welcome a fleet with open arms that is on its way to attack their ally. So it was decided that the fleet would leave the Baltic in two parts. One would leave first and sail all the way down around Europe and around Africa, heading up the eastern side of the continent to rendezvous with a second group of ships that left a couple months later and would take the Suez Canal. This would give the Russian government time to control, uh, cajole the British into letting them use the canal and would also deal with any Japanese ships that were waiting in ambush at the canal exit, as Russian Navy planners feared. The whole force would then cross the Indian Ocean, make their way up into the war, keeping an eye out for Japanese ships all along the way. And on the 15th of September 1904, this relief fleet was officially dubbed the 2nd Pacific Squadron. So who would lead this effort? The man selected by Tsar Nicholas was Admiral Zinovi Petrovich Rosasvensky, known as Mad Dog, but never to his face. He would spent 40 years in the Imperial Russian Navy, and unlike most of his fellow officer corps, had ridden, risen through the ranks by his own merit rather than aristocratic rank and ambition. He wasn't corrupt, which in itself was exceptionally rare, and remarkably fair if particularly demanding to his crews. Despite his unpopularity with fellow senior officers, the ships under his command had always been well-led and well-disciplined. He was highly popular among the lower ranks, however, despite being given to fits of rage and a tendency to punch crewmen who disappointed him directly in the face. Uh, he was, but he was also willing to do the same to officers who had mistreated their men, so long as they weren't too closely connected with the Russian imperial court. His rage wasn't limited to his ship's crew. He had a tendency to run around the conning tower of his flagship, slinging insults at ships that had screwed up maneuvers or failed at their gunnery, often firing live rounds across their bow to get them in line. He also had a tendency to fling his binoculars over the side in the directions of the ships that had disappointed him, and it was noted that several extra crates of binoculars had been loaded aboard his flagship, the Kina Suvarov. That's some real Bugs Bunny shit. Yeah. I... I... <laughs> I like it. He he becomes like a Russian Yosemite Sam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's using Acme brand mm -hmm. uh, binoculars, <laughs> but it's all binoculars. Cyrillic, of course. Yes. You know, we got to keep the jokes. We got to keep yeah. the jokes right. Must only use Acme brand to serve the Tsar. So, but there are also if the so, okay. So if the journey goes well, there's a laundry list of issues facing the Russian fleet. Russia is not the most popular country with the rest of the imperial powers in the world. England and Japan, notwithstanding. So friendly anchorages are going to be few and far between. Also, their crews are completely green and in desperate need of training. They're mostly conscripts, most of whom had never even been to sea before, mixed with a group of sullen and disaffected reservists. And most of the officers were inexperienced and not what you would call shining examples of professionalism. This is also in a time when the rules of mm -hmm. war, they allow any neutral country to just flat out refuse to give any help. Mm -hmm. Well, know? in neutral countries, by the rules of war, were it was kind of demanded at that time. I mean, yeah, it was, like it was generally considered unchivalrous. If you if you yeah. were neutral, you were truly neutral. Yeah, you, mm -hmm. you don't help them refuel, or resupply and refuel. You, you don't yeah. do it. Well, and this is also the early 20th century, so this is a time of constantly shifting and developing alliances that would cause, you know, big problems a decade later. But it's, yeah, there is a, uh, a chivalry to uh, the methods of international diplomacy at this time. 
considered, you know, gentlemen's agreements, handshake deals, and you have a code of honor that you are supposed to abide by. Um, Rosasvensky took to using colorful terms to describe his officer corps, including calling them a, quote, great collective manure sack and a vast empty space. This was before the fleet had even set out. Uh, many of the cruiser and destroyer captains had the habit of anchoring their ships behind the larger battleships relative to the flagship uh, to make it easier for them to sneak off to shore and get hammered. Another problem that the fleet is going to have is that they have been, been given very little ammunition and monetary resources, so they don't have a lot of cash to purchase supplies along the way or to bribe harbor masters, the sort of things that you have to do for a fleet underway. And they've only been given enough ammunition for one decent training shoot and one fairly prolonged engagement. And that is the thing about anything naval. You train and you train and you train and you train. My father and I were talking about that mm -hmm. this very weekend. You train until you get it right, and then you train to keep it right. Yeah. So not having any, not having any training ammunition or relatively little training ammunition and not having enough to, you know, to, to do this over the course of 18,000 miles yeah. is, is ridiculous and on its, its face. And it's going to cause a lot of problems for the Russian fleet later, but in some ways also a bit of a silver lining, as we'll get into. Another uh, serious problem was coal. All of these ships are powered by coal. And Russian ships were designed for use in the Baltic and the Black Sea, so they're not designed for long range. Meaning that the journey from the Baltic all the way around to Asia would require half a, at least half a million tons of coal and anywhere between 30 and 40 separate recoaling sessions for each individual vessel. And this is whenever these, these ships operate differently in tropical climates than they do in the cold climates like mm -hmm. in the North Sea. Which they're going to have to go through. Like, yeah, and, and, we'll get to, and we'll get to some of the problems this causes a little later on in the story. Mm -hmm. and, there, and, and why do these problems Why do these problems keep cropping up? Because they just ignored every fucking one of them. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> like, all the, everybody is abundantly clear. We're not looking at this through, you know, hindsight. This is not hindsight is twenty twenty kind of thing. They knew all this shit. Mm -hmm. and they just kind of went, right. eh, yeah, we'll they, figure it out. Like, yeah. the Imperial yeah. Court doesn't really care. They're, yeah. they're setting themselves up for failure, but they really don't give a shit. Um, now, with the lack of available coaling stations, the Tsar's government was forced to flex its admittedly limited diplomatic muscles and arranged for the use of 60 colliers of the German Hamburg-America line to meet the fleet at certain points on certain dates to do recoaling at sea or in neutral ports that would allow it. Of course, if there's a delay of any kind, this can lead to all sorts of logistic issues and a 1905 battleship fleet is definitely stuck without a reliable source of coal. And you, and speaking of refueling at sea, I'm sure when you were on the Gettysburg, you we, guys did refueling at sea. Yes, it's called underway replenishment yep. or unreps. And I could tell you, unreps, we basically jet fuel is what we used. We did the the gas turbine engines run the base, essentially the same engine as a DC nine. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly the same, but it's very close. Yeah. And that's the type of fuel it uses. It's not easy for one ship to do an unreps today with jet fuel. I can't imagine, you know, I, little, I, 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 I picture little midgets with, 
shovels, just, just you know, just throwing, yeah, th- throw, <laughs> throwing it into rowboats and row, rowboating it back and forth. And I, basically I don't even know how, how it happened. If anybody was unclear, a collier is a type of ship that's not a, you know, a, a rank or anything like that. Yeah. And it's just a big cargo ship that, that carries coal. Side, and it, it transfers coal over onto a warship. That's all it does. And, it, and an, an, a, another technique that the Russians were going to use is they were going to load extra coal to minimize... Like, that 30 to 40 recoaling stops, that is with this tactic that they use where they're going to put coal in every extra space. Now, co- ships of this time had dedicated coal bunkers where you would store the coal that, that would then be shoveled into the boilers. But they also were putting coal in the passageways, in all, any storage space they had. They were putting sacks of coal in the... I mean, in, in the ward rooms, in the mess hall, everywhere. I have, I have a, a figure. This is from the HMS Collingwood, and this is a little bit before. Uh, this this it was in 1883. Um, the HMS Collier uh, would unload, their target was to unload 40 tons an hour of mm-hmm. coal, and that was considered fast. Like, they, they hung their hat on that. They could do 40 tons an hour. It took over 12 hours to restock half of the bunkers on a typical ship. Yep. That's how much coal is going on to these things. And, and the Collingwood was a very similar ship mm-hmm. to a lot of the uh, ships that are being used in this fleet. So that's that's a good find. I like that. Well, and bear in mind, this is also the equivalent to, to, to modernize it. When we're talking about the Gettysburg and underway replenishment. Doubling the coal outside the bunker, putting it in the passageways, in the mess halls, in the bunk, you know, these, this would be the equivalent of taking a modern Navy warship Closing off the watertight compartments and filling those compartments with jet fuel. Yeah. And if you can imagine what I'm saying as far as how dangerous that would would be when you think about jet fuel, this was the jet fuel of the day. And we'll get to some of the specifics about why it was so dangerous later. The um, The worst thing that can happen on a ship isn't necessarily disease, which was also super common. Uh, It was fire. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think it's a big deal. Oh, we're... Where are you going to go? This where are you going to go? Yeah, but what are you going to do? Put water in the boat? The whole point of a boat is to not have water <laughs> Just in it. Just to keep right. out the water. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But also, another problem that the Russians are going to have is they're, they have these ships that are made for operating in a pretty much a subarctic environment, or at the very least, a temperate environment in the Black Sea. When you're taking these ships that are constructed to be functional in a colder environment, and you're taking them to a tropical environment, because this, because this journey is going to involve them crossing the equator, I believe, four times. I mean, yes, you can yes, you can times. you can Depend- speak to the challenges. On which yeah, boat. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Right. You can speak to the challenges, Mike, of operating a warship in very very different environments, and that, and I mean, it's a challenge in modern warships that are meant to be handled in a variety exactly. of seagoing environments. It, it absolutely is. I mean, the 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 ship systems func- function differently. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the a lot of the systems, high pressure air systems. Um, well. What, for modern day, you know, when you when you when you're talking about um, different atmospheric changes and barometer changes, they affect the uh, the way the hull works, yeah. the way the rudder works, the way the uh, the ship's boilers and the 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 actual mechanisms that run the ship and the propulsion react vastly differently if you're working in the North Atlantic outside of Halifax. Or if you're working in the North Atlantic, off the coast of Florida, yeah, and it it's very apparent. 
So yeah. does bread dough. Like it's, yeah. yeah, the environmental factors are unbelievably well. It plays into absolutely every aspect of the sailors' lives. It really exactly. does. Um, now another problem they had. I, I, I was thinking about this is the presence of uh, revolutionary elements among a lot of these crews. They're already unhappy because they've been conscripted. A lot of these people are communists. They're Bolsheviks. They have very, very heavy leanings against the czarist government. So there was a big, big fear among the officer corps of sabotage or fighting amongst the crew. Uh, and in addition to the revolutionary elements, you have large groups of absolute religious fanatics. Um, that we're, We'll talk about how there were certain cults that started to form amongst the sailors of the fleet uh, a little bit later. And also, so, so most of the, the ships are a little older that they're going to be using in this fleet, but the best warships, the Borodino-class battleships that would form the core of this fleet, were brand new. As a matter of fact, this fleet was going to be their shakedown cruise. And you never want to have a shakedown cruise in wartime conditions if you can help it. Let alone with a, with, let alone with a crew who has no idea what they're doing. Well, and it's, uh, one, of, one of my favorite quotes... Uh, I'm probably bastardizing it. it was ha uh, half the crew had to be taught everything because they didn't yes. know it, and the other half of the crews had to be taught everything because they had be they had forgotten it or it had been obsolete. <laughs> I, I I have the quote. This was from the uh, the the captain of the Kinaz Suvorov. Um, yeah, one half of this lot need to be taught everything because they know nothing. The other half need to be taught everything because they have forgotten everything. So. So not only, if we're keeping track at home, not only is Russia long in the tooth, the fleet is long in the tooth. Yes. And the crew is long in the tooth. Or <laughs> way too short in the tooth. Right. <laughs> so um, also, just I, I just want to take 30 seconds and talk about when I say battleships, what we're talking about here. What we're dealing with here is a class called pre-dreadnought battleships that fit into a very specific time in, in, in history. So they're mostly built between like 1880 and 1905. They're built out of steel. They're powered by coal. They normally weigh about 10,000 to 15,000 tons, about 400 to 500 feet long. They tend to have crews between six and 800 men. They can travel between about 14 and 18 knots on average, and they're normally armed with a primary battery of two turrets with guns ranging from 9 to 13 inches in bore with a secondary armament of anywhere from, oh, I don't know, 8 to 16, 6 to 8-inch guns, and then a whole bunch of other smaller guns. So these things are bristling with weapons. They are filled with shells, propellant, coal um and, and people and my god I just and did, people yeah the human you, element is you gave me those numbers i i can tell you because it's unclassified because if you want to look it up it's on uh it's on wikipedia the uss gettysburg's 9600 tons mm -hmm. it was 660 feet long our complement was 351 officers and enlisted yep 351 guys on a 600 and we still felt a little cramped at Pretty times. Pretty cramped in. You just said six yeah. to eight hundred people on a vessel that was two hundred yeah. feet shorter and the, 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 within the Kinaz Suvorov a few weighed, hundred tons weighed thirteen and a half thousand tons. It had nine hundred and fifteen men on it because it was a flagship. So you had the admiral staff and everything. Right. But like dudes are sleeping a foot apart in hammocks. So it's yeah. I mean you're you are packed in. So oh the nonsense began even before the squadron left. The new battleship, Oriole, was fitting out in preparation for taking part in the expedition until some workmen had removed some of the steel hull sheeting, forgetting that an intact hull is necessary for a battleship to float, and then everyone went home for the day, leaving the ship to sink at anchor in Kronstadt Harbor, necessitating a scramble to refloat, repair, and refit her before the voyage began. 
The assembly of the squadron was also marred by a seemingly endless series of collisions that left many ships damaged before they even set out. How even, do you forget that? It, uh, How is that? Uh, uh, the, the vodka rations were pretty high. Yeah. You know well, we've, I mean, we've all, like, left the lights on at work at, when we're closing the bar or whatever, you know? But Yeah, like, but I, I didn't take the bar top off and fuck home. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, they got this. It's, I mean, yeah. yeah, it's kind of important. You think you'd hear the rushing water coming in. A, a sheathing plate. Yeah, you might need that. Well, I, I was thinking about this. Like, maybe they, they removed the plate when the tide was lower and so the water wasn't coming in, but then the tide comes in. Like, I... And they weren't thinking about it. I don't. It, uh, here's the thing. I tried to justify it in my head, and none of it made sense. So, despite all of this, on the 16th of October, 1904, the force of ships under Rosasvensky left Tallinn and Lepaya, and it wouldn't take long for the shenanigans to begin. The tone of the voyage would be set within the first two days, as the flagship Kinez Suvorov ran aground, though luckily without significant damage, and the cruiser Vladimir Monomach lost its anchor and chain for no apparent reason. It just broke and just fell into the ocean. Now, all of these are very good signs. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you are superstitious, as so many Russian peasants are, and actually quite a lot of the officers. Every fucking sailor hits. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I am. Yeah, fair point. It's 120 years later, ain't changed. No. Yeah. So, while still making their way across the Baltic, the, um, the boat davits on the cruiser Zemchug failed dropping a cutter into the water, which promptly sank. The faulty davits were dismantled and taken by boat across to a place where they uh, could be repaired. And that's where we meet one of the biggest assets the Japanese will have against the Russian fleet. A ship, which we will become very familiar with, the Andy Dick of the Imperial Russian Navy, the repair vessel Kamchatka. Originally designed as a collier, she was converted to serve as an armed fleet repair ship, and in addition to six small guns, she could carry a large load of supplies and spare parts that would be essential to a fleet undergoing a long journey without any friendly dockyards to access along the way. So the net full of davits is being hoisted up to the Kamchatka's deck where somebody with really sharp technical skills walks by, hits the release on the crane as a joke, and drops all the davits into the water, which proceed to sink to the bottom of the freezing Baltic Sea. Uh, this is another example of the sorts of events that would color the entire odyssey from beginning to end. Uh, the fleet made its first international presence felt when a group of Danish colliers that had been contracted to make the first uh, at-sea resupply with the, of the fleet with fuel approached. Uh, the exchange occurred, but extra compensation for the Danish ships was made in the form of a series of collisions that left several of the colliers crippled. And the Russians made up for it by refusing to assist the damaged vessels and sailing off with a cursory, okay, thanks, bye now. Well, at the same time, one of the one of the cruisers lost its anchor chain. In the confusion, a destroyer rammed a battleship. Yep. And they both had to go to they both had to return to port. Yep. All right. Yeah, they were doing great. It was just it was one day. Yeah. It was one day. We are two days into a seven and a half month voyage, and all of this has already happened. So they're, it, they're still in the Baltic. Yeah. <laughs> they're still in sight of land. So, as the fleet rounded the northern point of Denmark, the Kamchatka once again made her presence felt when, out of the blue, she reported that she was under heavy attack by eight Japanese torpedo boats. Torpedo boats. Off of Denmark. <laughs> Japanese torpedo boats. 18,000 miles away. Off of Denmark. Uh, to this... And if they're you don't good. Know, well, and if you they don't know what... They ain't that good. <laughs> well, if you, don't, uh, if you don't know what 1905 torpedo boats look like, they're about 100 feet long. They weigh about 150 tons. They're these tiny little zippy boats that have a range of few hundred miles yeah maybe i mean granted okay so the english were still building ships for the japanese but how did the japanese teleport the, the crews to england to serve these ships like 
It 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 defies it defies because uh, the emperor wills it. That's fair. Um, to this day, nobody knows why the Kamchatka thought there were eight Japanese torpedo boats attacking her off of Scandinavia, or what the source of it was. But it sent the entire Russian fleet into a panic, with ships scattering in all directions and firing into the night, burning precious ammunition. Now, of course, they didn't hit anything because there was fuck all around to hit. A couple days later, the Kamchatka again did her thing by firing warning shots at a passing Swedish textile transport, claiming that it, too, was a Japanese warship. Now, her shitty gunnery didn't cause any harm to the civilian vessel, and what could have been the squadron's first, but definitely not last, true international incident, was avoided by a hefty payment of cash to the boat's crew as a little we're sorry. Later that day, a Russian dispatch boat carrying messages from the Tsar and the mail was fired upon at close range, but again, the gunnery was so poor that even this slow vessel was missed at close range. Missed completely by dozens of warships. Uh, No reports are recorded as to what words the crew of that boat had for the uh, squadron sailors and gun crews. Well, the worst part was is that they had to give the flag officer of that fleet the announcement that he had been promoted. Yeah. Yeah, as yeah. he was getting fired, as they yeah. were getting fired upon. Yeah, these were the after people me, who were yeah. supposed to deliver the news that Rosasvetsky had prom- promoted in absentia to full admiral. <laughs> so uh, rumors continue to abound of Japanese torpedo boats, Japanese submarines, which in 1905 the Japanese didn't have, uh, and Japanese laid minefields. This atmosphere is nervous. And I, I think these guys didn't realize how far away Japan actually was. I thought they thought That's it a- might be like tucked next to Portugal or something. I it, it seems like it. Of course, I mean, the more we get into this, the more we realize these guys were pretty much idiots. Yeah. I mean, even even up into the command ranks. Yep. Whenever he gives the command that no no ships are allowed to enter the fleet, as yes. soon as he gives the command, a fishing boat pulls up, and they all freak out and start shooting at it. Yep. And they miss. Right. Yeah. As, you, well, and, and Ross Svetsky, as is tradition. Well, Rostovetsky <laughs> issues this order that no enemy vessel is to get in amongst the fleet. It sounds to me like he just gave in and just gave the order to get these guys to shut up. But that leads to the Dogger Bank incident. We finally get into the North yeah. Sea. <laughs> October 22nd, while sailing on Dogger Bank between uh, Denmark and the British Isles in the dark, the Russian fleet stumbled upon a small uh, group of British fishing trawlers from the port town of Hull. The Russian warships illuminated the small trawlers with their searchlights and failed to recognize their signals, which they thought proved that these were indeed Japanese torpedo boats, despite the vast difference in appearance and performance between an early 1900s torpedo boat and a wooden fishing trawler and almost the entire fleet opened fire on about a dozen small unarmed fishing boats. Hitting? One trawler was sunk, four others were damaged, two British fishermen were killed, and six were wounded. Now, the trawlers had their nets down and were unable to flee. They couldn't move, so it could have been a lot worse for them. Now, granted, they could have fired back with their deadly cargoes of haddock and cod, (laughs) but, again, the Russian gunnery was so poor that for all the rounds that were fired, remarkably few hit. Also, it puts a serious dent in the fleet's limited stock of ammunition once again. In fact, the battleship Oriole, the one that sank because those because those dock workers just decided to take off part of the hull. Yeah, because um, there was a gaping hole in it. Yeah. Uh, reportedly fired over 500 rounds at close range and failed to score a single hit. The, the Russian sailors were yelling 
the, the, like their ships were being torpedoed. They were being boarded. Well, we'll, we'll get Men to are it. running around <laughs> arming themselves yeah. everybody they could find. Well, yes. And it's just fishing boats. Well, several ships had claimed that they had been hit by torpedoes, and the battleship Borodino sent out a report claiming that it was being boarded by the Japanese, and some of the crew armed themselves for close combat while dozens of others donned life vests and laid down on the deck preparing to abandon ship all without orders. The captain's going, why is nobody listening to me? What is going on? <laughs> the only result of this was dozens of Russian sailors ending up in sickbay with lacerations and bullet wounds from running around in the dark, bumping into each other with cutlasses and revolvers drawn. So, the uh, also the cruisers... Uh, well, second, so the situation continued to devolve, and soon a lot of the Russian ships stopped firing at the trawlers and began to target each other. The cruiser Aurora, the cruisers Aurora and Dmitry Donskoy alone, this is two cruisers, medium-sized ships, about half the size of the battleships, were engaged by seven battleships, and all there was to show for it was a dead sailor and a dead chaplain on the Aurora, and eight hits between the two ships, none of which caused significant damage. Um... Whenever the first guy that you pop off is the priest, it's probably a bad yeah. sign. Yeah. Yet another one. Again. Well, and it did very little to uh, dampen down the religious fanaticism mm -hmm. among the fleet. Uh, Rosasvensky, seeming to be the only man in the fleet able to recognize fishing trawlers, frantically made his way around the flagship trying to get the searchlights pointed skywards, the signal to disengage. It ended up taking over 30 minutes to get the flagship's crew alone to stop firing, and much longer than that to get the signal around to the rest of the fleet. Uh, no words on how many pairs of binoculars were angrily whipped into the ocean. That's how he was getting. That's how he was getting everybody's attention. He was just firing off handfuls, <laughs> handfuls of them. Someday I'm going to go scuba diving right where this is, yeah, is at. See if I can't find, find one rusted, pair. Just find, find a out of them. <laughs> just find a rusted out pair of binoculars yeah. next to. And it's going to. I'm going to get down there, and it's going to be like finding sand dollars at you know Nag's head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. After the firing stopped, the Russian fleet sailed on, not stopping to assist any of the distressed British vessels or crews. There was outrage in Britain. Uh, calling uh, Calls for war uh, appeared in all the major newspapers. And the fact that the Russians had opened fire on civilian ships from Japan's ally had the potential to cause major problems for Russia, who could ill afford a war on two fronts. The British home fleet was ordered to raise steam and prepare for action, and the home fleet alone outnumbered the second pacific squadron by about five to one in terms of ships and had them way overmatched in terms of quality of men and materiel the movement of the british mediterranean fleet to the straits of gibraltar to block off the mediterranean sea meant that the balance would become seven and a half to one very soon uh the british commander-in-chief uh uh first lord of the admiralty admiral beresford taking into account the awful russian gunnery that had already been spoken of and the lack of seamanship offered to the British Admiralty an attack plan that he deemed chivalrous, whereupon he would engage the 2nd Pacific Squadron with four warships, because that's what he thought was fair, with the rest in reserve in case the Russians actually managed to score a couple hits. I mean, this is the same Russian fleet that just fired on fishing boats for 20 minutes before they realized what the hell was going on. Yep. Uh, so yeah. four might do it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, or probably would have, I would have been, Chris. <laughs> well, and the, well, and the British have the best battleships in the world. Mm -hmm. So, Not only they had the best battleships, they had the best sailors. Mm -hmm. Now, not wanting a war in Europe, uh, all the major governments lent on Russia to investigate the incident fully, and the Admiralty ordered Rossesvedsky to dock in Vigo in Spain. The British fleet backed off, and Rossesvedsky sent ashore uh, for return to Russia and court-martial several officers he thought most responsible for the Dogger Bank incident, as well as 
at least one who had been very vocally critical of his leadership. And now eventually, an international commission was set up in Paris early the next year to investigate the incident fully, and it was determined that Rosasvensky had done everything in his power to prevent the firing on unarmed civilian vessels, and that the driving force behind the incident was, quote, a general atmosphere of confusion and varying degrees of incompetence, uh, end quote, among lower-ranked Russian officers. A settlement of 66,000 pounds, worth about $7.5 million today, was paid to the surviving fishermen voluntarily by the Tsar's government. Not, by, not by command of the commission. They went ahead and said, we're just going to make this payment just to take some of the heat off. I, I like that term, varying degrees, because I don't think there was anything variable about the, mm. the, the horrible, horrible yeah. conduct. Now, after leaving, Now, after leaving Vigo... The squadron then headed to Tangiers, Morocco for a scheduled coaling rendezvous, but found when they arrived that a vessel was missing. Which vessel do you think was missing? Uh, <laughs> Which one have we already decided is the most important thus far? <laughs> the icebreaker. No, sir. <laughs> it's, it's named after very shitty no. college X gets the square. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Kamchatka, of course, had been missing. Um... She did arrive in Tangiers three days later uh, with a gripping story claiming that she had engaged three Japanese warships and fired over 300 shells. Those vessels turned out to be a Swedish merchant vessel, a German fishing trawler, and a French cargo schooner, all of which were fun little incidents that kept the Russian diplomatic corps nice and uh, on its toes for a little while. Uh, matters they are, just, they are just sailing around the North Sea like uh, Jimbo and Ned in South Park. It's coming right for us! <laughs> it's, it, it matters were certainly helped by the fact that the, Com <laughs> that the Kamchatka reportedly did fire off a lot of shells in each of these encounters and hit her targets exactly zero times. Uh, so bad was the Kamchatka's gunnery, it was said that the German trawler had been engaged for over 20 minutes before it realized that it was even being fired upon. Um. Now, given that the British were still having that flip-a-coin moment to decide whether or not to blow the entire 2nd Pacific Squadron out of the water, this was a fairly lucky break for everybody. Uh, just for funsies, apparently, when the squadron was leaving Tangier, the cruiser Oleg went ahead and accidentally severed the city's uh, underwater telegraph cable with her anchor, cutting off Morocco's telegraph communication with Europe for quite some time until a new cable could be laid. As the uh, fleet sailed south towards the equator... The weather began to get hotter, and the ships began to suffer from the drastic change in conditions, as we discussed before. Uh, one enterprising prankster aboard the flagship took the liberty of taking the ship's mascot, a dog named Flagmansky. Flagmansky. Yeah. There's no way that's real. Like, one of the sources just had to just wing that one. I, I, I found multiple sources talking about this. Uh, <laughs> shaved off all of its fur, with the exception of its head, leaving what was a fluffy white good boy looking like a weird little lion. Um, the drawers and doors of cabinets would no longer close as the heat swelled the wood and metal throughout the ships started rusting due to humidity. A uh, raucous celebration of the Neptune ritual uh, occurred throughout the fleet as the ships crossed the equator. Uh, do you guys know what the Neptune ritual is? Did did, I don't think uh, I'm familiar with I, what I don't think the modern U.S. Navy does right. this because it, it involves so often right. crossing the equator. But up until, I mean, really up until the Second World War, uh, when ships would cross the equator, they would, 
the crew would party and people would dress up. Uh, oh no, a no, no! Would dress that's, up like they, Neptune, they, they, king they, of the that's, sea. Uh, that's becoming a shellback. I don't think they refer to it as the Neptune it's, ritual. It's, it's lion yeah. crossing ceremony. Yeah, it's the lion crossing ceremony. Uh, yes, yeah, so yeah, in the navy they call it becoming a shellback. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you become a shellback. So the which I am not, unfortunately, although I yeah. am the descendant of shellbacks. So there is still an element of ritual right. there. Oh, it's absolutely. Just, just well, of course, I don't know how much in the past. 10 or 15 years now because hey because it involves mm-hmm. a lot of hazing yes well <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. does it ever nope. um the uh so booze stocks were broken into and sailors gaudily painted and dressed as neptune venus uh merman and russian peasant women ran around dunking everyone in huge baths laid out on the decks but this went a little bit awry as these gangs of celebrants got a little too aggressive and two sailors were drowned in the course of these rituals. Yeah, that's going a little too far. A little bit too far. Um, whilst rounding Africa's Gold Coast, with the end of 1904 approaching, the Kamchatka did her part for fleet morale by finding a newspaper on a passing American cargo ship that had printed a story stating incorrectly that the portion of the Russian fleet that was transiting the, Su- the Suez Canal had indeed been attacked by the Japanese in the Red Sea, uh, as had been feared, and as they exited the canal... Most of their ships had been badly damaged, and the Kamchatka promptly broadcasted this news throughout a fleet that had been on edge since they left port several months earlier. Uh, another panic ensued, and a sense of doom really began to take place amongst the crews, leading many of them to get close to the point of mutiny. Uh, it took several weeks, and the panicked acquisition of as many other newspapers as the Russians could scrounge from passing ships until they could prove that the story was in fact false and order and confidence began to filter back into the fleet. Uh, then a couple days after that, the Kamchatka did her thing again uh, by sending a message to the flagship stating that she was heading off course and had been severely damaged by a torpedo. Uh, panic once again ensued until it was determined that the Kamchatka wasn't going to sink, that she only had minor cosmetic damage, and she had not been struck by a torpedo, but in a, instead collided with a relatively small piece of floating debris. Now, when they brought those newspapers on board, just out of question, how many did does it say how many sailors were running around going, "This is fake news. This is fake news." <laughs> well, what, what do wrong, we have now? wrong. We have cult-like fanaticism. We have the people who are just like overtly communists. Like, <laughs> it's probably not all that different. Exactly. <laughs> fake news is it just makes sense. Just wandering around in, in red pillbox hats and say, "Make Russian Navy great again." <laughs> it's. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, just before uh, nightfall the next day, the Kamchatka, once again, uh, signaled the fleet, saying that this time she was having engine problems due to bad coal, leaving her unable to keep up sufficient steam. Uh, they were putting coal in pots and pans and shit. She could have been right. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anywhere the coal could go, it was. These were yeah. just... Not only fuel air bombs, <laughs> which yeah. just coated in fine layers of coal dust, which I understand a lot of you people aren't sailors, myself included, but I understand. Padre, that sucks? Yes. yes. Okay, good. Yes. <laughs> That's going to be yes, a bad time. Okay. Have you seen that? Have you seen that? Have you seen the Buddhist, the picture of the Buddhist monk from the, the 60s that yeah. lit himself on fire? It's one yeah, of those. Yeah, that's about where you're dealing with this. I dig it. I. It, we, yeah. I mean, okay, really. so that's bad. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah, oh, bad okay. thing. Okay, okay. Uh, the captain of the Kamchatka asked permission, uh, asked for permission to throw 150 tons of the bad coal overboard, recommending that the rest of the fleet do the same, as they had all been cold from the same batch. 
Uh, Rostislavsky suspected that the lack of sufficient steam was due to crewmen on the Kamchatka shirking their work duties and knowing that the coal was fine, denied the request, instead granting permission for any crew members of the Kamchatka found wanting in their duties and to be the actual cause to be thrown overboard instead. <laughs> I kind of get it. I, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's like... this guy. That's the thing is we're not real. What we haven't really talked about yet is <laughs> Rostislavsky's growing irritation i mean it is just snowball well there's a reason point. why they thought ahead to bring more than 50 pairs of binoculars yeah well at, at this point just, how many pairs of binoculars do you think we're through like 12 15 oh uh, it, probably close on 20 i mean they had about yeah, 200 yeah. on board the uh the kines suvorov so <laughs> they made sure to bring plenty somebody knew this was going to be a mess well, I love that one of one of his favorite acts was when when they would get when when a ship would fall out of line, he'd make them follow behind, anchor at stern, and he would shout at the captain of the vessel yeah. <laughs> in front of the whole crew through a megaphone through a megaphone. <laughs> you like he loved screaming at ships, and like it didn't matter how far away it was. He would no. just he would just go was, outside. Yeah, and yeah right out on the bridge wing. They could be not visible through fog or in the dark, but if you knew generally where they were, he would just stand on the right point of the bridge wings and just scream. I mean, it's, it's got to be cathartic. Oh, well, it has to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is early 20th century we, Russian therapy. We all do this. Yeah. yeah. We've, I mean, we've been there. We've all, I mean, I know you and I, Chris, probably you might. Yes, oh, absolutely. We've definitely all walked into a walk-in cooler, shut the door, and just started screaming every every swear word we can think of. And throwing anything we can find, right. including binoculars. So, <laughs> after the ruling that uh, shirking crewmen were to be thrown overboard instead of bad coal, uh, mysteriously, the Kamchatka found herself able to keep up with the fleet just fine. The boy who cried torpedo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the way down the west side of Africa, and let's be honest, all the way to their destination, uh, the ships of the squadron, the Kamchatka foremost among them, made sure every few days to send out reports among, among the fleet of sightings of torpedo boats approaching, making sure that any progress would be hindered by the fleet having to assume battle order and delaying itself accordingly. Uh, all of these shenanigans were starting to get to Rosasvensky, who began to refer to many of the ships and their captains by a series of disparaging nicknames. Uh, he would often end up giving orders to entities such as the, quote, slutty old geezer, the polished fidget, the brainless nihilist, which is my favorite yeah, hipster bar in New York, yeah. uh, the guard's uniform hanger, and the lecherous slut, which was, of course, his nickname for the Kamchatka. The Kamchatka. <laughs> Not uh, to be confused with the filthy horror of cabin boy fame. Yes. There's fancy lad. There's the cabin boy reference. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Well, we're finally talking about boats again. It's a little easier. Yeah. Oh, well, we were talking about Russian boats, and we've mm. left that. Oh, God. I should... No, I'm not going to mention no. it. Forget I did. Don't do it. No, <laughs> Don't you do it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, I, we haven't gotten to the horses yet. No, we're, don't worry. One could say Rosasvetsky got fucked as hard as, uh, you know. Uh, nope. <laughs> so as the fleet rounded the Cape of Good Hope, the fleet received a message from a particularly sarcastic British official who warned them that a large fishing fleet was active off the waters of Durban, as a, just so as you know. Yeah, please, please don't kill them. Yeah. Um, please so, stop just firing lead at these yeah. dudes. Uh, so the original point of rendezvous uh, for the two parts of the reinforcing fleet was to be the French colony of Madagascar, a place to stop so that the men could get some R&R, &R, uh, the ships could get recalled and repaired, and the various elements of the fleet could all coalesce for their final run towards the war zone. And it's the stop in Madagascar and the rest of the journey of the 2nd Pacific Squadron and their eventual fate that we will discuss 
in the Odyssey of the Second Pacific Squadron, Part Two. Yeah, we're gonna give you guys yeah. a little R and R, and we'll pick this one up. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. So, what do you think so far, guys? Oh my. Uh, I just like that anytime anything happens, the Kamchatka is like, their torpedo boats were hit. <laughs> no matter what happens. Yeah. I I mean, here's the thing. We look. We we we're all fans of history, and we know that. There have been a couple points where the Japanese have been under underestimated by the traditional powers, but uh, in this a, case, there's one infamous date that comes in mind. Comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's a big one. Um, but it, you know, that's the thing is the Japanese were uh, by this point a pretty capable naval power, as we will learn. Yeah, but not eighteen thousand miles capable. But yeah, not not, <laughs> not more than with halfway around foot the boat. world. Yeah, capable. Um, yeah, I just don't. And, 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 you know, we talked about the fact that the British were constructing a lot of Japan's warships for them. And sure, they may have picked a couple up in Britain and just sailed them straight into the Baltic. But how would... You still got to get a crew there. Yeah. How would they get... You know, how do they teleport several hundred Japanese sailors to England? They snuck them in in the holes of other boats. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah it just... It, it, it's astounding. It's absolutely... Astounding! I could not believe the level of incompetence. Well, and that's the thing is, is I can't believe I mean, they made it as far as Madagascar. Like so far, it seems that the only decision that was good was picking the admiral. Yeah, that's that's it. A, a poor Rosasvetsky. I mean, I feel Rosa so Svetsky bad for is, this guy. Is I know we we talk a lot of shit on what's going to happen because it's all stupid. But whenever I said that every decision they made was completely ignored, all these things that they knew were bad ideas. Yeah. The only bad idea they did not have was Rosasvetsky. Mm-hmm. And Rosasvetsky yeah. was the one standing there saying, hey, guys, this is probably not a good idea. Well, this is not a good idea. This is not a good yeah. idea. And that's you, the thing is, Rosasvetsky wasn't the best and, admiral the Russians had. Like, Russia's three best yeah, admirals had all been sent east on the Trans-Siberian Railway and, and one, had all been killed by the Japanese in the Pacific. But... Like, Which, by the way, uh, Marzo, uh, Marzov? Makarov. Or Makarov. Makarov, if you, have you seen the picture? Greatest beard ever. It's pretty tremendous. It's this is, and this is an era beautiful. of a very rich naval beard. And, and, I mean, Chris, his beard makes your... You've got a pretty mighty beard, and his makes your... I mean, he makes you look like a, a, a little boy. Oh, it's monstrous. Yes. And it's... Well, it, it's winged. I mean, it's it looks like, like a... Like a star, like the bottom well, points of a star. And, well, and what happened to Makarov was so unfortunate uh, because join he was... us for part two of our episode on mustache care, waxes, and balms. Yeah, <laughs> but he, um, but he was standing on the bridge wing. I think it was on the port side of of his um of his flagship, flagship the Petroplavas, uh, the Petro something, long Russian name ship. We'll Petro- call it that. Petronimkova. <laughs> he um, and he's standing on the wing, and the ship hits a mine, and the top of the mine. Flies up and decapitates Makarov. And his beard. Do you think the beard was intact? I certainly hope One so. I hope so. I would, I, he had to be looking up or away because if he hadn't, the beard would have stopped it. It would have stopped it. Do you yeah, think yeah, it if he had it back, it. back to it? This is a little morbid, but do you think as his head flew into the air, it flew up very quickly but settled very, very slowly, slowly as the beard acted like a giant, yes. giant drog shoot? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'd like to think so. <laughs> I, I would too. So yes, yeah, so um, join us. Uh, yeah, so join us next time for Russian Pacific Second uh, Pacific Squadron Part Two because if you think it's been stupid so far, <laughs> and it, and boy howdy, man, when they yes, anchor when they anchor in Madagascar, they are going. It, it gets stepped up by so many levels. 
And then we will talk about the fate that eventually befell the 2nd Pacific Squadron. So, uh, yeah, so that's it for this episode, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back. Uh, we're, getting, we're just going to sit here in the, the old kitchen and record them one right after the other. So hopefully we'll be able to get these out to you uh, yeah, fairly close together. We're going to keep the drive right. alive. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, if, uh, if you want to get involved with us, find us on social media. Chris, where can they find us? You can email us at trrpod at gmail.com if you have anything you'd like to send our way, any, uh, anything we may have gotten wrong. Uh, anything you might like to hear about, we'd love to hear yeah. from you. Corrections, feedback, suggestions, uh, um, limericks, haikus, nudes, all of it. Yeah, the, the erotic fan fiction. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at PodcastTRR. You can follow us on Instagram at TRRPod. And you can find us on Facebook. Yeah. Um, by the way, the uh, anonymous submission of Three Bears, One Kyle was uh, pretty good. Yeah, I didn't hate it. Yeah. It was I mean, very tastefully weird, done. Weird, but flattering. Oh, and by the way, um, as far as 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 far as my cult members um, in the Bob Crane sex cult, we we do have an. I did have, did speak this week to an acolyte. Mm -hmm. His name's Jay. He told me to let you guys know that he does he he does have a camera tripod, <laughs> and he wanted to know what to do. So I just want to let my my cult members know out there. Hold on, all will be revealed. <laughs> Those are the four creepiest words I've ever heard you say. Yeah, it was it was even in the delivery of the line. Yeah, I don't, ugh, I don't like it. <laughs> All right, maybe, so. maybe this is one part. You're, you're yeah. on your own. Figure out the rest. Google it. But uh, yeah, did we hit him with the? All the social media details or social media is up, baby. Cool, we cool. just gonna talk about if yep. if you really want to help us out, you can find us up on uh, Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as one dollar a month. You can help us uh, keep doing what we're doing and, and providing all the goodness to you. Yep. Uh, and that includes you getting these episodes early. So you won't even have to wait if you want to listen to both parts at once. Exactly. Uh, we are going to be uh, doing I believe a uh, Halloween special, as we have been doing every I year. I have a phenomenal idea for the Halloween special. Fantastic. And uh, I think the Halloween special is probably going to be, because since it's not going to fit into the episodes we have planned, the Halloween special is probably going to be a Patreon-only release. Yes. Okay. So um, if uh, if you want to hear our Halloween special, you can go ahead and find us on, uh, on Patreon. And, of course, your Patreon donations, every cent that comes in through Patreon gets sunk right back into the show. Of course, we've got these great new mics. All of our research material that I mentioned at the top of the episode. It's your uh, the costs of keeping us on various platforms. It's your Patreon dollars that lots definitely help us Lots and lots of liquor. That. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, like and, I said, and we cover the those. Podcast. The rest just goes to like psychotropic drugs. Yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, next uh, next time, uh, come on back and we will hit you with part two of the journey of the Russian Second Pacific Squadron. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you guys are too. Uh, yeah, so this was great. Kyle, we miss you. Uh, we can't wait to have you back for the Dan Sickles series. We can't wait to have Jim here for the Dan Sickles series. That'll be great. But uh, in the meantime, uh, stay safe out there. Stay healthy. Stay smart. Uh, stay strong. And, of course, as always, hold fast, everybody. Bye.